listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast by Dr. T. Michael W. Halcom, Dr. Frederick J. Long, Dr. Mario Melendez, Dr. Jennifer Noonan, and J. M. Smith. Welcome and enjoy. Matters also is a YouTube channel that I haven't published anything in a while yet, but I have a Greek reading group. If you're on the nerdy language major majors, I'll probably post soon. If you want to zoom in and join me with a Greek reading group. So, um, welcome to Participants. I think our experience of learning Greek might be characterized as something like this. Greek 1, we're pretty happy. We start Greek 2, we get shocked. We start learning participles and we're disgusted. Uh, and then eventually we say, why are we learning Greek? We don't need to learn these biblical languages. And then in the end, we have to party with the participles. Now, I'm not sexist because the same thing happens to women. They go through the same kind of process. Although they tend to end up a little bit happier in the end. Uh, they don't go quite as crazy. Now, this meme was floating around recently, and I thought, that's just not true. That's just not true. Anyone know why? The genitive ending, right? Own. Well, guess what? That's on the paradigm ending of archon, which is masculine nominative singular. So that's not true. And guess what? I was As I was researching this talk, Guess how, what the frequency is of participles according to NA28? 6660. <laughs> participles are awful. Now, I was just, I was just, I was just at Justin County's fair, and I was watching this take place right in front of me, and I thought, this is what learning participles is like. <laughs> And this is how students begin to navigate sentences after they learn participles. They're like confused. Like, I don't know what's going on. So this is kind of an analogy of, of participles. So I think I just hit the. So let me let me walk us through uh, this material um, participles. Now I'm using OneNote because it allowed me to do some drawing. Um, if you've ever used OneNote, it's pretty awesome. Uh, you just have to kind of learn how to use it. But I can start drawing all over my notes. So you have this handout now, I think. So I love God's Word. Okay, God's Word is just that special. I think uh, Dr. Howell, Adam, hit it out of the park today. Um, scripture comes to us in three different languages written across dozens of different cultures. And it comes to us as a stranger. And that should humble us. It should humble us. Scripture comes to us as a foreigner. And there's something about engaging it in its original language, languages that humbles us and invites us to experience someone different, something different. And our biggest struggle is to overread or over-understand scripture rather than to come under it and to listen to it as a stranger, empathetically. And uh, so participles is one of these areas where it's confusing. Like, how do we handle participles? Well, so, participles, let's go over this. This probably will be a chapter in a forthcoming book. 
I've been envisioning writing a separate book just on participles. They're that much fun. They're verbal adjectives. As verbal adjectives, they have characteristics of verbs, tense voice mood, and they have characteristics of adjectives, gender, case, and number. They are efficient packages of verbal action. So we need to think about why do authors use participles? Why? It's often a choice to subordinate some action or connect some action to a main verb action. Now there's some debate about uh, whether, you know, I think Stephen Levinson says, uh, no, the, a participle following an imperative has the same weight and value as the imperative. So it's not backgrounded. Uh, but I think that there is a choice uh, that backgrounds the participial action. Author is choosing to, to subordinate it to the main verb. And so uh, we need to look at that and think about what that means. Participles are very dynamic. That is, they can take arguments, which is a technical term, right? They can take direct objects and indirect objects. They can have adjuncts, which is a technical term that means like adverbs and prepositional phrase qualifiers. So when you throw a participle in there, uh, instead of an adjective, you're really causing a lot of dynamicity. And we'll look at some examples where I think considering what the alternative could have been, that the participle adds, uh, allows for more dynamicity. Because you're basically using a verbal idea as an adjective, and that verbal idea can have all these attendant <coughs> arguments and adjuncts to it. So the main uses, they, they basically fall under a, a, what I would call modifiers. So in the sentence, basically, I remember Eugene Nida telling me this, he, sentences have connections, connectors, subjects, verbs, direct objects, maybe indirect objects. Not all verbs have these objects. That's the main sentence. Everything else is a modifier. What that means is that this is extra information that the author has chosen for effect, for purpose. And so we have to pay attention to what authors are doing. Uh, there's a lot of attention needs to be given to these, these adjuncts, these things that are not technically needed by the verb because they're extra and they convey extra some uh, uh, meaning in terms of the communicative uh, effect on, on the, the sentence utterance. So as adjectives, participles can modify nouns. This is an attributive use. We'll, we'll look at all these, this is kind of an overview, then we'll get into the weeds. They can also stand in for a noun. This is called a substantive use. Uh, and we'll, we'll, look, we'll work on rules to kind of tell when, when it's doing one or the other. When they're functioning like Verbs, they function supplementary um, as or with the main verb. So there's a couple of uses that we'll look at. The periphrastic participle that works with imi or yinome uh, or implied imi uh, to form like a main verb. Or they work with verbs that take participles to complete their meaning. That's called complementary use. They also can form subordinate clauses. So notice that the periphrastic use and complementary use, these are like the main verbs of their clauses. But you can also use a participle that can stand alone 
that is subordinate to the to the verb main verb, which is I'm going to call the nuclear verb, uh, and they form uh, subordinate clauses. And I prefer to call these circumstantial. And I'll give you reasons for that. It's common to teach and to learn these circumstantial participles as adverbial participles. I think that is a misnomer. I presented at the SPL, Society of Literature, on this like six or seven years ago. And I'm going to, it's a paradigm shift, okay? It's a misnomer to call them adverbial because we begin to confuse them as inherently conveying adverbial ideas. Cause, concession, purpose, means, manner, condition, when in fact the participle is unmarked for those. A.T. Robertson noted this over 100 years ago. So why are we still teaching them as adverbial participles? Uh, I can show you an, an example. A student came up to me after uh, I was teaching uh, a session in Memphis, a class, and I wasn't planning on looking at this right away, but you know what, we gotta look at it right away because it's that important. So here's, here's this verse. So I was teaching through Hebrews, and she comes up to me, she says, how can this be true? It's impossible to renew people uh, to, to repentance? Like, can these people never be saved again? Can you see the verse there to the right? I've got a coloring code there. If they've fallen away, it is impossible to renew them to repentance since they again crucified for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So once lost, always lost. So I was like, wait, we've got, we've got to look at the Greek text here. Well, notice that the word since is simply a participle. And it's, it's not just any participle, it's a present tense participle which means ongoingness. If they continue in this, it is impossible to bring them to repentance. That's a different reading. These translations often, translations will often take that as a causal participle. It's not marked for cause or not cause. It's marked for imperfective verbal aspect because it's a present tense participle. It could be just as well translated if, as, while. And that changes the whole meaning. In fact, I sat down with Gary Cockerell. He wrote the Hebrews commentary in the International Critical Commentary of the New Testament. Really prestigious series. And I shared with this, and his first response was, well, no. Like, and, then, and then he thought about it, and he goes, you know, I, I think you're right. <laughs> Author of Hebrews is very technical with his, his use of the Greek language. <coughs> And so this is just uh, one example of where we need to pay attention to verbal aspect. So I'll, hit, I'll come back to this point because I think it's a really important point. And so if, if they're not adverbial, then we need to have another understanding of what these circumstantial participles are doing. And so my new model, which is in my Koine Greek grammar, which was already sold out, sorry I didn't bring enough copies to the conference, I, I'm going to suggest another model work based on the work of Stephen Levinson, Steve Rungi, and uh, also the new grammar by uh, Matthewson and Emig are doing something similar. So they published that in 2016. So they're on to it as well. 
although they still say adverbial and stuff like that, but they admit, yeah, these are not marked for adverbial senses. So these subordinate clauses can be really intense. So here's two examples. You know, you know it very well, Matthew 28, 19, therefore going, make disciples. So there you have a fronted or pre-nuclear participle, nuclear to the main verb. It's fronted, it's pre-positioned. Um, that's a simple little clause that it's doing there. Uh, you can also have, uh, look at this big list of 38 words and seven participles, framing, really, providing a framework to understand that this woman touched Jesus. That's the main sentence. So you have all this modification, all this extra stuff being accomplished by these participle clauses, of phrase, yeah, clauses, really, yeah, clauses, and so uh, participles can be daunting. Like, what do you do with that big conglomerate? What's happening? I would suggest it's a providing a framework to understand that she touched Jesus and why she touched him. There's a lot of quantitative emphasis there. Look at all the gray things. They're all words of quantity. This can also happen in post-position or post-nuclear. So here... Uh, and he preached saying, this is called a redundant use. Okay, Rungi talks about this, redundant quoted to frame, I think is what he calls it. What's the function of that redundant participle? And by the way, it doesn't just happen with verbs of saying. I found it with verbs of acting, I found it with verbs of knowing. So what is it doing? It's offsetting what follows as particularly important. Okay, then there's this great example, uh, I love this, this verse. I mean, he says, don't get drunk with wine. That's, that's in uh, 18A. I live in Kentucky, and thank goodness he doesn't say bourbon. Okay, so you can get drunk with bourbon, but you're not to get drunk with wine. Well, no, Paul is talking about the most common form of entertainment in the ancient world, wine parties. So by application today, don't do anything that is so immersive to you that it prevents you from being filled with the Spirit. Boy, does that will that preach to us? That's what we need to do, right? What kind of entertainments? We're like a huge entertainment culture, whether it be sports, gambling, the most common thing on the internet, pornography, awful, biggest business. Don't do those things, but be being filled. Notice the present tense imperative with the spirit, and then you have this listing of five participles. Now, these are explanatory. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? We'd be hard-pressed to choose one adverbial sense for that, I think. Whatever it is, it somehow is related to these kinds of things. Someone who is filled with the Spirit is speaking to himself, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual uh, songs. I think this is an internal dialogue, good positive thinking. Uh, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. I think this is kind of an internal practice. We are giving thanks always. Uh, in everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are submitting ourselves, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And notice how this kind of slides into the next verse, one, uh, 522, which I don't have up there. We'll look at that a little bit later. This is another use that I just, it just dawned on me about six months ago. There's another post-position use of these circumstantial participles. I'm calling it transitional. This clearly is transitioning to the wives in relation to their husbands. Because the verb is assumed there. It's not that verb submit is not found in what follows. 
So this participle, which comes out of being filled with the Spirit, which talks about a mutual submission, is used of wives in relation to their husbands. And I think there's a real sense that the husband, in some way, is submitting to his wife. It's a mutual submission because it comes out of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, like your mar- our marriage relationship comes out of that. Now, we've already talked a little bit. We'll go into more details about these things. There's about one participle, 0.84 participles to the verse. High frequency. It's the highest frequent non-indicative mood. So there's about uh, about one-third as many as indic- uh, 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 indicatives. So it's, it's all combining all other moods. And we're treating participles as a mood. It's not technically a mood, but just for the sake of simplicity. Now, what tenses are the most common? Well, the most common tenses are the present. Then next would be aorist tense. Uh, then there's perfect. There's about 12 uh, future participles, which are indicating, they tend to indicate expected things, which is often telic or, or corpus. Now, what I wanted to find out which which uh, tenses, cases, and numbers are the most common? And this is going to help streamline memorization. Like, what should you focus on first? The largest majority, by far, of cases of participles are nominative. Nominative. Focus on the nominative forms. And they're mostly going to be present and aorist. So focus on the aorist and present nominative forms that's going to get you through about 70 or 80% of the participles. That's pretty amazing. Right? So let's just focus right there. Okay? So in terms of strategies, uh, let's focus on, on those. And so uh, working down, these are the ones you should focus on. Own, omenos. The second aorist is going to use the same as the present with the stem chain. Remember, the second aorist has a stem change. That's how you differentiate it from the present tense. But it's going to be using the identical endings of the present tense, uh, nominative, singular, and plural participles. Uh, then sas and santes. If you learn these endings, you will probably know 70% of the participles. That's a pretty good payoff. Just get it down. So um, next, I would prioritize memorizing the uses of our cone or the forms of our cone, which is used so often, it really comes from the verb arco to rule, it's used so often that in our lexicon it's treated as a noun because it, it has a substantive use. But it's the paradigm for uh, participles, the active formation. Arconantos, antianta, arcontes, arconton, arcusin, arcontas. And by the way, once you learn this, you know the, the, the participle forms of imi, the verb to be. It's the endings. So there you go. So that is a really important paradigm to learn. Next thing I would learn is just the tense indicators. Sigma alpha, that's going to be aorist perfect. It's going to have kappa in the active formation. Aorist passive of theta epsilon. Okay, so that's just kind of a strategy. Also, some things to remember is that the participles, um, the active voice participle forms follow a 313 pattern. And what that means is that the masculine and neuter forms follow a third declension ending pattern, and the feminine follow a first declension ending pattern, right? So that's the article pattern. The, 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 the article is your friend, remember. 
article occurs, like almost 19% of the Greek New Testament is the article. Learn the article. One out of every five words. And, and when you learn those endings, you learn the first and second declension. And the pronouns. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a huge payoff. Okay, so here's a master chart. When you download the handout, you can see it. This comes from a textbook. So what, what motivates the author's use of a, of a participle? Arguably for communicative efficiency, uh, to tap on a verbal idea to the main verb of the clause, the main verbal clause, called the nuclear verb. It's tacked on to that. But at the same time, it's also, there's kind of a dynamism there. So here's an example where Paul is discussing the, the things done in secret. So don't be participating with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And by the way, my, my dissertation research was on ancient rhetoric, published with Cambridge Press. It's called Ancient Rhetoric and Paul's Apology. This verb, elenko, is a technical term of refutation. There's treatises that are named after the noun form of this verb. This is not simply exposed. This is more than is exposed. This is to technically engage and refute. Okay? And there's there's something to be taken away from this in terms of like how do we engage our culture? Now we don't want to be bombastic about it. We need to have a good demeanor, but we also need to call things out and engage things and, 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 and get, a, get ahead of the game, and particularly for our people. You know, what are the pressing issues in our culture today? AI, it's, it's, if, it's, if you're not thinking about AI, you should be, and transgenderism and, and gender issues. Like We need to be getting out in front of those in our, 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 our churches. You know, we're beyond homosexuality. We're now into transgender, people changing it. It's gonna to go to bestiality. It's gonna to go to uh, multiple marriages. I mean, one of my nieces asked me my thoughts on like polygamy kind of things. She asked me that many years ago. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about Plato. Let's talk about his ideal state. Let's talk about the problems. He proposed, yeah, having you know open marriages and this kind of stuff. This is like, we're beyond that though. Now we're moving to, it's gonna be crazier things than that, I'm afraid. We've got to get out ahead of them. So Paul says, don't participate with them, but expose or refute them. For the things done by them in secret are shameful. So this, this, uh, this notion here, the things done in secret, is actually a, a, uh, a substantive participle. So here's this article, ta, which is working with yenomet. Yenomet turned into a participle. Now, Paul could have just said uh, the secret things. So, uh, you know, for the things done in secret are shameful. He could have said secret things are shameful. He could have used these adjectives. But what is achieved by using this participle form? Well, you all of a sudden can have adverbs. You all of a sudden can add really easily a prepositional phrase by them. So he's starting to call people out. He's starting to talk about the manner of these kinds of things in darkness. They're in secret. So he's able to add a lot of content by using this participle. Moreover, yinameh is a technical term of like a deed done in a court case. 
So again, this is kind of fitting with this 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 court forensic judicial rhetoric that is that Paul is talking about here. He's wanting them to, to gear up. When you were when you had a, a case, you could talk about the things that were done using this verb. And so uh, uh, this is what I think Paul is doing here. Okay. So when it comes to participles, and we're going we're gonna, to, again, look at each of these uses, um, the most critical things to keep in mind are the tense, which is a really, now we're understanding that tense has primarily to do with verbal aspect. We've been teaching Greek long, wrong. We've been, we've been, we should probably be organizing our Greek around verbal aspect. So we need to somehow privilege that. So when you go to the participle, you basically have the present and aorist tense. And then you have some stative or perfect tense participles. So when you're looking at a participle, a lot of times the choice is between present and aorist. That choice is between two verbal aspects. Imperfective aspect, present tense, and perfective aspect, which is the aorist tense. So when we investigate and interpret participles, we need to be looking there. Why was one aspect chosen as opposed to another aspect? And then we also consider voice. So that's, that's a, a choice that's being made there as well. Okay, um, and as I've already begun to hammer, uh, participles are indeed unmarked for adverbial meanings, despite how they're taught and learned. Uh, we, need to get, we need to get past that. So, here is a chart that summarizes the main uses. The basic uses are adjectival. When the participle is acting like an adjective, uh, and basically it can do anything that adjectives do. Attributive use, when they modify a noun, when they stand alone, a substantive use, and then there's the predicative use, which is kind of rare, and it's kind of close to a periphrastic. So, then you have the circumstantial uses. Uh, by far, these are the most common. These are the most common. And what I'm gonna to present to you is that you need to look at the participle in relation to the verb of its clause, what's called the nuclear verb. That nuclear verb may be in the subordinate clause itself. So that's why I don't wanna say the main verb. So I get this language from Stephen Levinson. He calls it the nuclear verb. The nuclear verb of its clause, it may often be the main clause, but sometimes not. Is this participle in front of that verb, or is it after that verb? And so what I'm thinking is that these participles convey a kind of information structure. They're, they're efficient packages, they're subordinating ideas to the nuclear verb, and if, if they occur before the main verb, there's three functions. Trans, uh, segue, which is transitional. And by the way, this tends to be the furthest away from the main verb. And they tend to be verbs of motion and might have locative connectors. And then uh, framework, provide an important framework. That's another preposition, pre-nuclear function providing an important framework to understand the action of the main verb. What's so significant that this woman comes up and touched Jesus? Well, seven participles explaining all the expense, the time, the frustration, no one could help her, she spent everything, 
and then she touches it. It's as simple as that. So that's all providing an important framework for the action of the main verb, just a simple touch. And then I started to observe another usage. I, was, I taught intermediate Greek through Luke Acts, and I kept seeing these participles that were directly abutted to the main verb. I'm like, what are these doing? Going, he went, or you know, going, he knelt down, or you know, knelt down, he prostrated, you know, he prayed, or something like that. So uh, these are often considered attendant circumstance, but I want to call them procedural. These are often not necessary for the meaning, and I suspect they're preserving cultural pieces of information. So, for example, kneeling down, he proskuneto. Well, there's different kinds of proskuneto in the ancient world. Proskuneto means to kiss or to worship. But you could do it standing up. You could do it with this. You could, there are different ways to do it. So the fact that it's described as kneeling, he worshiped, is, is preserving a cultural kind of logic. So uh, I call that pre, uh, procedural. Emig and Matthew, Matthewson and Emig, they call it prerequisite. So they're on the same page, the 2016 minus 2015. Post-nuclear positions are redundant. He said saying, he thought thinking, he did doing. Those, again, are real close to the verb. So we're going to see a pattern here. Far away, far away, middle, middle, abutted. Pre-abutted, post-abutted. Post-abutted is um, redundant. And this is to offset what follows as particularly important. It's a, it's a redundancy for effect. Then uh, another use is explanatory. That comes from Rungi. That's a, that's a, that's a no-brainer. The participle is explicating some aspect, something of the main verb. And then something that just dawned on me, I always looked at Ephesians 5, 18 to 22 as like my favorite verses. I begin to realize, oh my goodness, there is another use. Far away, it serves as a transition to what comes next. And so segue is a kind of transition. Transitional is another transition, but let's preserve that for the post-nuclear, farthest away, participle, transitional. So that's my new paradigm. Okay? We can think of possible adverbial meanings, but these come from context. And to the extent that they're from context, that means that they're not inherent in the form. So... So there we go. It's not inherent in the participle. And to lock in an adverbial sense can be tragic. It's impossible to bring these people back to salvation and repentance since, because, well, as, as long as, if, they continue, it's a different meaning. It's not, it's not once lost, always lost. All right, then there's this pragmatic uh, supplementary uses. I think you probably familiar with those paraphrastic, uh, with ini, uh, complementary use, those are somewhat rare, certain verbs like I don't cease praying for you, uh, pavomat takes a uh, participle to complete its meaning, um, so, and then pragmatic use is the generative absolute, and there actually is something called an accusative absolute, so these kind of stand alone. So since you, I see some unbelieving looks, uh, I want to show that I'm not making up the accusative absolute. <laughs> so here is an example. The eyes of your heart having been illuminated. 
There's nothing grammatically that this is why it should be accusative. Uh, what it is, is it's a post-nuclear explanatory uh, participle. Um, why is it in the accusative case? Why are genitive cases used? Well, what's the meaning of the accusative case? The genitive case is a case of description. So that's why it's well suited for the genitive absolute. What's one of the uses of the accusative case? It's extension. So genitive, the way to remember some of these basic ideas of the genitive and dative and accusative is to think of their time uses. Pretty cool to think of the time. The genitive of time is kind of time. It's a descriptive time. Dative is point at which. On the third day, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. That's a genitive of time. And then the accusative time is extension. So I'm wondering if this accusative is somehow uh, involved in this idea of extension here. Anyway, this is an accusative absolute. They're kind of rare, but uh, they are rare, but there's an example right there. Okay, so the genitive absolute is often understood as a switch reference. Technically, it's supposed to be a different subject than the subject of the nuclear verb, the main verb. But there are six instances in the New Testament where it's the same. Levinson looks at this and he says, well, in five of them, the subject, which is the same as the main clause in the genitive, it has a different uh, role. There's a different, there's a transformation. Uh, one is an experiencer, one is an, a, a participant agent or something like that. So he discerns that there's a change taking place when it's the same, like there's some slight difference in the subject in, in those cases. We'll look at a few examples then. Um, I can pause here for any questions before we jump into a lot of examples. Do you have any questions? Yeah. Do you have an extra handout, sir? Sorry, I brought 20. Thank you. So those are just two of the pages of the URL that you can that you can get. Um, question? Yes. I was wondering if you would comment on Martin Cooley, and I, I think he pronounces the name differently, uh, as he asserts that oh, the, Cully. Cully, that uh, circumstantial participles only occur with the nominative outside of our absolute construction. Well, it's a matter of definition. If uh, you know that would exclude genitive absolutes, that would yeah. He he gives that genitive absolute as a, an exception to that. But uh. I think I think uh, I think oftentimes it's the, the participle will be connected to uh, uh, like an indirect object or a direct object, and then it becomes questionable whether it's adjectival. But again, I, I don't I I don't want to get too stuck on categories. Too often our grammatical categories are for the purpose of justifying our English translations. And that they, they, they're more out of our concern to systematize things. We need to understand what was a Greek doing with this. And and by the way, was a Greek author thinking, I'm gonna use a Segway parson right now? Well, I don't think so. I think these can be both and. They can be Segway, transitional, and framework. It could be procedural and framework, because I think language is, is a bit fluid. So I would have to keep thinking about that one. I, I, uh, I think you know, it's a fair point that he makes. 
he's a great guy, by the way. He really worked with me laboriously in the second Corinthians handbook. Oh my gosh, he put a lot of time in as I was writing that. A lot of helpful feedback. Was there another question? Yeah. Um, can you just describe more of what you mean by an accused of time being an extension? Well, if you look at, at beginning and intermediate grammars, they'll have discussions of that. So it'd be like during, uh, for this amount of time. So we have to look at some examples. And once you set them side by side, it's pretty fun to see. Okay. So look for a time word that's in the accusative case, and uh, you'll, you'll kind of see that spell out. All right. Yeah. Just real quick, uh, just out of curiosity off the top of your head, can you think of any other examples of the transitional participle, like what we see in the We'll look at one, uh, yeah, we'll look at examples, but I'll, since we're in Ephesians right here, uh, Jesus, in the genitive absolute construction, is thrown in uh, right there, genitive absolute. Now, typically, genitive absolutes, they, they tend to occur before the verb, so they tend to be pre-nuclear, so this one's ah, it's post-nuclear, but look what it's doing. It's providing a transition to the relative pronoun clause. In whom? So, I would say it's a pragmatic effect of, of it. It's a, it's a circumstantial, I, I think of them as circumstantial participles. This one's post-nuclear, segue. So this is new to me. I'd like to go through and like tag all the participles in the New Testament. That's a big project, but I, I would love to do it. But yeah, so if you have any, Send them my way if you find one. Yeah. yeah, not too long. I just wanted to make sure I understood. You said one of the reasons why a speaker would use a participle is because it allows them a lot more freight to say a lot more. As opposed to a simple adjective. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you get just a lot yeah. more there. Yeah, you can pack more in. Yeah, you can pack modifiers, direct objects, and direct objects. You get in with a genitive absolute, you can throw another subject in there. So they become, um, pragmatically, they become like a, like a designated hitter, something like that. They can come to the plate with a full entourage, yeah. Um, all right, so adjectival uses, these are, I think, pretty simple. Uh, again, you have the handout. Um, these are, you know, these are kind of common. They're gonna have the article. Rare exception that you might find one without an article. And then that gets us into article rules. Why would a participle not have an article if it's a substantive participle? Well, the lack of an article is one way to introduce something into the discourse. So that's an article function. Those functions are summarized by Jenny Reed Heimendinger and Stephen Levinson, who gets it from her. I summarize them in like two or three different places in my point of grammar. So that might be why you might have an anarchist <coughs> substantive participle. They're not common. So most of the time, these substantive uses are going to be recognized because of the definite article or the article. Attributive uses will probably also a lot of time have the article, but they'll be working with a noun. The coming wrath. Who told you to flee from the wrath that is coming? Or the coming wrath? This is really a first attributive position. So there's the article, there's the participle circle, and there's the rap. Uh, and then here's the crowd. The, crowd, the coming out to him crowd. The coming out crowd. So that's rather interesting that, that the sandwich technique is being used, first attributive position. 
Now, I think if the author wanted to stress the coming outness of the crowd, they would have put that in the second attributive position, repeated the definite, the article. Um, all right, so circumstantial. So here I kind of hammered the adverbial senses even more. Um, you can go to Robertson and find that discussion and others. Uh, I've already kind of summarized these uses. And then so here's some examples. After coming into the house, this is simply a segue to get us into a new location. So these, these segue participles, this is not providing an important framework, I don't think. I mean, I guess he's into the house. But it's, it's, it's kind of getting Jesus from outside the house to inside the house. Um, and then you have falling. They, they prostrated himself. This is a pre-nuclear. See how it's directly abutted. That's going to be a procedural. Um, is that technically necessary to say? They could have just said they, they prostrated Jesus. Well, maybe if it's to distinguish different types of what's called proskuneo, kissing or bowing or kneeling. So falling is probably a cultural artifact to help explain. Often these are going to help offset the importance of the of the pros, uh, of, of the main verb. And by the way, going, make disciples of all nations, that's probably a cultural idea. We're looking at the fulfillment of Isaiah where the law was supposed to stream forth from Zion and go to the nation. So this idea of coming and going frames Matthew's gospel. There's a lot of coming and going going on to Jesus, and now we're to go. So this idea of going is, is a re prerequisite, certainly, part of the procedure. Like, you have to do that to get to the nations. I mean, we want everyone to come to our churches, right? That's how we're supposed to do evangelism, right? Build it and they will come, right? Field of dreams, it's not for the church. We're to go. So this going is it's a very important concept, but it's still supporting the idea of making disciples. Okay, so pre-nuclear, um, here's an important framework, the own being blind. Now true, we can infer from this that there's a concession idea, fine, but it's providing an important framework. Let's, let's understand the information priority first. It is providing a framework to understand why it's so significant that this guy can now see. Post-nuclear, you've got redundant, like I said. Um, you've got ex explanatory, and then there's this new category that I've been sharing about. Here I've already shared about this submitting to one another. And this verb is implied with the wives to their own husbands. Like the verb is not, it's understood from here. What does that mean? I mean, we have to wrestle with that. Our verse, our verses, and and paragraphing in our Bible separate that. They separate that verse out. In fact, this, see this punctuation gap here. That's from the NA twenty-eight. I didn't add that there. It's obviously on the same list of participles. So um, there's a relationship here. And so uh, again, this is a segment. This is a transitional, post-nuclear transitional. Paying attention to the verbal aspect, it's uh, a lot of these are present tense, which is ongoingness, iterative, habitual kind of things. Uh, a lot of post-position participles, circumstantial, are imperfective aspect, but not all of them. But we have to kind of look at the the uh, 
the, the, the tense, the verbal aspect. Here is one discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. We have to kind of skip over verse 9. Verse 9 is this like important aside, but you know, as children of light, keep walking. So keep walking as children of light. The discerning is explaining an important aspect of what that looks like. And by the way, I think this discerning capability of believers is underdeveloped. This is one of the things that in our Christian formation, if we're not helping people be transformed in the renewing of their mind and able to test and approve what God's will is, that's the same verb, Romans 12, 1 and 2. This discerning, this, this, this restoration of a discerning capacity is what is involved in the, the gospel salvation project, right? It's not just a ticket to heaven. It is so that we can flourish as human beings. And part of our flourishing is to be moral agents formed, reformed in the image of God so that we can be transforming those around us and, and acting under the power of the Spirit, under the discernment that comes to the Spirit. And, you know, you can't write a law for everything. The law was good. The law was very good, holy and spiritual. But you can't write a law for every, like, circumstance. But we have the Spirit. The Spirit is with us that translates the will of God in our lives. And I think one of our greatest needs is to be discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. And that can be so individual, can be so circumstantial <coughs> for us. But this is something that we need to grow into, this idea of, of that. So here are the adverbial <coughs> senses. I would, um, you know, just, okay, consider that. But, um, but here's an example of, this is what I presented at SBL at the conference. I said, what's, what's the proper meaning of speaking there? Have I then become your enemy? So Paul's, he's a little bit angry with the Galatians. This is a transitional passage, 416. He says, have I become your enemy speaking truth to you? Now, a lot of times you might say, well, that means that's concessive use of the adverbial participle. Is it? Um, uh, you know, uh, speaking, it could be by means of speaking the truth to you. Like a friend is supposed to be speaking the truth to you. Um, so there's different options for how to consider translating that post-nuclear participle. We can say that it's uh, probably explanatory of something. But that's just an example. We looked at Hebrews 6, 6. So time is short. we got another session. Um, is the other session begin right at 4? Okay, so I need, to, I need to stop in five minutes. Hard to stop. So um, here's here's uh, periphrastic use. What do we do with periphrastic participles? It's often a choice rather than using the, uh, a finite verb construction. So what I think is going on is that the, the verbal attribute, which is found in the participle form, that is being emphasized as an attribute of the subject. So we need to kind of work with, I think, that kind of assumption. You will be hated by many because of me. What's being stressed is this hatedness. That's a very real, serious concern. Uh, you will be hated. Um, imperfective aspect, ongoingly. Uh, people don't like, uh, uh, you know, Jesus, the Beatitudes, builds to being peacemakers, and then it goes right away to being persecuted. Peacemaking is calling people out 
trying to reconcile them. If you're trying to reconcile people, that's some of the hardest work you can do because you basically have to say, you know, Bob, you had this issue, and then Sue, you, you misunderstood, and you had this issue. But one of them, they're not, people don't like being called out. It leads to persecution. This idea of hatedness is, is going to continue for us because we're to stand for justice and truth, and we're to speak truth one to another because we're co-body members. Um, okay, so here's some examples of, of paragraphic participles. Here, this is really interesting, this own test is not strictly needed. It's just not needed. So why is it there? Why is the paraphrastic construction used? It's to emphasize the having become darkness, which is actually, this is a perfect tense. We should, uh, this is really being emphasized here. It's in the midst of this very dismal description of the fallen uh, Gentile world. Complementary use, don't want to spend too much time there. Generative absolute, we've talked about that a little bit. Um, have some further description here. I don't think there is an imperatival participle. I think they can be explained elsewise. I don't like making a category for imperatival participles. You can see some of my reasoning there. And then this leads us to what I want to end with, is to show you that there's actually a way that you can work through to discern what kind of use participles have. So does the participle have an article or not? Yes or no? Yes. You're looking at an adjectival use. It's that simple. No. Next question is, does, is it in the nominative case or not? Most of your participles are going to follow this route, by the way. Most of them are going to be nominative. We've already seen that. Um, are they working with the verb of being or not? If they're working with the verb of being, it's a paraphrastic participle. So eventually, this is going to work out to, uh, you, can, you can read these. There's interpretive questions. What is the sentence function of verbal aspect? When it comes to circumstantial uses, is it prepositioned? Is it postpositioned? And what kind of use is it? A secondary question could be, are there any adverbial senses that we can say that is, are implied from the context? And then we can go there. Well, uh, we're out of time, and I want to make sure you get to your next session. Um, I hope you found that helpful. Um, a lot to think about. I would have liked to nitty-gritty a little bit more examples, but I guess I was doing that throughout the whole presentation. So thank you for your time. Interested in growing your ancient language skills but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glow's House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glow'sahouse.com today. Glow's House, language resources for the global community.